We are continuing our study of the book of Matthew. We finished the Sermon on the Mount last week. The title of the message last week was Exclusive City. Uh, so, and we learned about exclusivity, exclusivity in the message Exclusive City. But this week, the title is in- Inclusive City. As we begin Matthew chapter 8, we're going to work our way through the first 17 verses. You know, in some ways, the world isn't that much different than middle or high school. You become an adult, things don't change all that much. I mean, they change, but some things are pretty similar. You still got your popular kids, right? Your popular groups. They tend to be good looking, good at sports, uh, wealthy, things like that. And then you got your different levels of outcasts in school. And so, and sometimes the outcasts have their own little circles themselves. You might have the sci-fi nerds or the, the smart kids and stuff like that. I looked up what one parenting website identified as the cliques that are in schools today. And so the upper echelon, the upper tier groups are the jocks, the floaters, and the good ats. And some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Well, the jocks, we probably all know what that means. The people who are good at sports. And then you've got the floaters who are they don't, they're, they're really good at blending in and making friends with all different kinds of people. And so they can kind of really jump from group to group. And the good ats are people who are good at a whole bunch of stuff. You know, not just one thing. They're just good at a lot. And so they tend to be popular. But also in that upper echelon, those kids tend to be good looking, maybe wealthy. So they've got the newest tech and the nice clothes and stuff like that. And then the middle tier comes. And those are the fine arts kids that we might know as the hipsters. The brains the normals, and the stoners, all right? And so they're kind of in the middle, all right? So the brains are the smart kids. The normals are just, you know, they're normal kids. They're just not particularly good at a whole bunch of different things. They're just normal kids. And then the bottom ladder clicks are the goths, the anime fans, and the loners. And so they tend to be the least popular. Then we grow up to be adult teenagers, and we do our own thing. We, we make our own clicks. You know, you've got parent clicks. You've got social media clicks. You've got sports clicks, hobby clicks, and all kinds of different things. And we also have our own special kinds of outcasts as adults in society. We've got homeless. We've got the mentally ill. We've got teen moms, addicts, um, criminals, you know, people who don't like desserts because who wants to be around them? I mean... And Beavers fans, of course. So you got these different kinds of outcasts, you know. And the thing about it is that some society just doesn't want much to do with some people for, for a variety of reasons. And so these outcasts, they kind of wander around the earth. Some of them want to be alone and others really long for human connection, but they can't figure out how to get it. And then we live in the internet age where the internet is trying to make all of us our own special little kind of outcast, loner. The question is, how are we going to respond as Christians? We are going to reach out, but the question is, are we going to reach out for, with a stiff arm or with an embrace? And today we're going to learn from Christ's example. Let's ask for his help. Lord, help us to understand your word. Help it to transform our lives. Help it to change how we think and how we feel, how we love. 
that we would leave here today better prepared to be like you in this world full of all different kinds of people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the section of scripture that we're going to be studying today covers three specific healings that Christ does. And that was he heals a leper, a centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. But I'm going to go a little bit out of order with this text today. I actually want to start at the end with the last two verses and lay some groundwork, cover a couple things before coming back to all those healings, which will be the main thematic focal point of the message. But let's start with verses 16 and 17. So he, he does those three healings, and then this is what they say. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. I want to start here because there's a couple of theological errors that we can make in these verses that I want to protect us from. And these errors come courtesy of the prosperity gospel, especially when it comes to healing and health. There's different aspects. For one thing, some people get the idea that Jesus healed everybody everywhere he went. All right. Well, that's not the case. Apparently, in this particular instance, in verse 16, it makes it seem like in this group, yeah, he healed all who were sick, but he didn't heal everyone everywhere he went. You might recall the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Well, look at what John 5, 2 through 5 says. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. That's supposed to be John 5, 2 through 5, not 25. And so then the story goes on about Jesus healing this one man among, in a place where there was multitudes of disabled. And so no, he doesn't heal everyone everywhere he goes. Also, I want us to take a look at what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. Do not go on drinking only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So apparently Timothy had frequent ailments, frequent illnesses, Right? And this is, Paul, this is what Paul prescribes. And we don't, also don't have any letters, any evidence that Timothy wrote back to Paul. Paul, don't tell me to use something more than just water. Like, lay your hands on me and heal me, man. What, what are you doing? Like, no, that's not what they do. But the Word of Faith movement tries to tell people that, well, God always wants his people to be healed and to be healthy. And if you're not, well, you know why? It's because you don't have enough faith. Right? That's what they say. Well, apparently they expect you to have more faith and a different theology than Paul and Timothy. And you're supposed to have more faith than the very people that teach you these things. You've heard me talk about Bill Johnson before. You know, that's someone who's been a longtime advocate that God's, you know, there's a healing in the atonement in this way that God wants his people and expects his people to be healthy and healed. And he even said in Charisma magazine, in 2012, this is what he said, quote, God gave every believer the power to heal as Jesus did, end quote. 
So that's what he says. That's what he believes. But then last year, sadly, it's not something we rejoice about. It's not, not a good thing. But last year, his wife died after a prolonged battle with cancer, which we lament. But I say that to point out that what are the people in his church thinking? That someone who said what he said a decade before, what kind of mental and theological gymnastics are the people in his church going through as they watch that man's wife suffer and battle cancer and ultimately succumb to it? Word of faith teachers will also point to the fact that Adam and Eve, you know, they were placed on earth and they were perfectly healthy. And that when we, in heaven, there's going to be no more pain, no more disease. And that's true. But they think, well, Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. And so, and also to empower his people to do the very things that he did, bringing heaven to earth. And so a big focus for these teachers is on healing. That's a big focus of their ministry and of the Christian life is people being healed. Yet they conveniently ignore the fact that Adam and Eve's perfect health, you know what that also meant? They wouldn't die, right? They would live forever, you know, being perfectly healthy does not just mean not being paralyzed or not having cancer. It means not getting old and not dying. But we overlook that. You see, Jesus never actually healed someone back to perfect health. The people that he healed still died. Now, ultimately he will. But our outer person continues to waste away. As Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, our outer person continues to waste away, to be destroyed by disease, by injury, ultimately by death. And, and some people are like, well, but God doesn't want it to be that way. Well, not for eternity, no. But he has plans to use those things right now. That he can use those things for our good. Johnny Erickson Tata, maybe that's a name that you've heard before. She's a sister in Christ that has learned, has, has learned how to suffer. Paraplegic, can't, has battled cancer, chronic pain, and in her suffering. And, and believe me, she wanted to be healed. She, you can go read, listen to her testimonies. Like She went to different faith healers. I mean, she tried everything that she could. She prayed so much that she would be healed. But God didn't that's not what he wanted for her. And she learned that it was through what she was suffering that God had a lot more that he wanted to heal in her heart that he was more focused on. And I want you to listen to her talk about her story just for a few minutes here. Is it on? Don't you think? Here, I'll start. People often ask me, they'll say, don't you think God was just laying on you a little too much? Cancer on top of chronic pain, on top of decades of quadriplegia. Well, is it too much for me? 
Would it be too much for you if that were God's choice of lemon in your life? To this you were called, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Oh my goodness, I want to follow in his steps. And if my Savior learned obedience through the things which he suffered, I'm not above my master. God is still doing a deeper healing, testing and trying and seeing if there is any offensive way in me. That's why you'll often hear me quoting from the Book of Common Prayer on which I was raised in the Reformed Episcopal Church. All the time, it seems, I am saying, Almighty God, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. I love those words, but I hate those words. So don't be thinking that for me in heaven, the big deal after I get to see Jesus is to get my new body. No, no, no. I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth, resists God, looks for an escape, gets defeated by pain, becomes anxious or worrisome, manipulates my husband with precisely timed phrases. No, I, I, I don't want anything, anything like that. When people um, come up to me, Christians, um, usually of the Pentecostal charismatic persuasion, they always want to pray for my healing. And they're quite bold to come up and ask if they might do so. I never say no, never. Do you want to pray for my healing? Bring it on. But I'll say to them, may I tell you some specifics about which I really, really need prayer for healing? Well, they get so excited. Would you please ask God to get rid of my peevish attitude in the morning when I wake up? And please, I have such a sour disposition when there's too much work on my desk. And you know, I really am a workaholic, so I wish I would pray about, I, I would just go on and on telling them all the things in my heart that yet need to be uprooted, confessed before God and repented of and healed. She realized that God had a plan, that God was doing something in her suffering. And you know, God might not heal you, but he will hold you. And that's reworded from something else that she had said. In this life, we are not guaranteed God's healing power at any moment that we choose, but we are guaranteed his presence in every moment. Always he is with us. Always he is working. In, in verse 17 of our passage, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53. That's a famous messianic chapter from the Old Testament. And Matthew points out that Jesus took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. But th there's people that will commandeer that. And they'll say, look, there's healing right now in the atonement. Like, that's what Jesus came here to do. And because he did it. And because Matthew's pointing that out. But we need to see 
the whole, the full counsel of Scripture. And so for one thing, let's go back to Isaiah 53 and read a, just a little bit of context around what Matthew's saying. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, says he was despised and rejected by mankind, which shows us that he connects with some of the people that, he's about, that we're going to study him healing. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now we read that. And I hope that most of us can read that and understand that that is it's about sin. Like, that's what we're, we're being healed of. That, that It's not about being healed right now physically. It's about being healed fully and completely in eternity from sin. And f Peter confirms this in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You see, all suffering, no matter what it is, the root problem is sin. Absolutely. Like the only reason we have any ailments at all is because of sin. And Christ came to take care of the root problem. But that doesn't mean that we're guaranteed to be taking care of all the issues that we have right now. But he takes it, care of it eternally. Of course, the rub comes, though, because people will say, well, but Matthew quotes this in this context of this passage where Jesus is healing people. And so by his wounds, we're healed. That means we have healing. But remember, you still die, right? And so even by that logic that it provides physical healing here and now, it doesn't work because you still get old, you still, your body still wastes away, and you still die. Some people, there, there's different extremes. Some people think that God can't or won't heal anybody miraculously anymore. And others say, well, God will heal anybody as long as they have enough faith. But neither one of those is true. God is not going to be put in that box. Can he still heal? Absolutely he can still heal. Am I saying that you shouldn't have faith? No, faith is wonderful. Have faith. But faith is not going to guarantee that you get what you want. What you want might not be what God wants. It might not be what you need. As Paul was teaching us in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't focus on what is seen but on what is unseen. We don't focus on what is temporary, but on what is eternal. Craig Blomberg said, but to require such healing of God, this side of eternity loses sight of the future aspect of the kingdom. Only in the world to come will sickness and death be banished altogether from believers' lives. He's right. And D.A. Carson wrote, the discussion cannot be used to justify healing on demand. This text and others clearly teach that there is healing in the atonement. But similarly, there is promise of a resurrection body in the atonement, even if believers do not inherit it until the Perusia. From the perspective of the New Testament writers, the cross is the basis for all the benefits that accrue to believers. But this does not mean that all such benefits can be secured at the present time on demand any more than we have the right and power to demand our resurrection bodies. 
The availability of any specific blessing can be determined only by appealing to the overall teaching of Scripture. So we, we take things in context. We, we, we look at what God's Word teaches overall, and, and that's what it teaches. Can God still heal? Absolutely. Does that mean that uh, you can just conjure up enough faith to heal whenever and whatever you want to? No. It doesn't. We, su- we submit to his wisdom. And so now that I've covered that, I want us to jump back to verse 1 and walk through this passage. Verses 1 and 2. When he came down from the mountain, so he just finished the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So first of all, let's set the scene. Leprosy is a horrible disease. It's a skin disease, but it goes beyond that. It attacks the nervous system, right? And people get the idea that leprosy can cause just limbs to fall off. And that can happen. But also, like, what it can do is it can cause people to, it causes them to lose their feeling, right? And so lepers become prone to cutting off body parts and limbs or rubbing off parts of their body. And it can attack the eyes and cause blindness. Teeth can fall out. It can make you infertile. Just to get you uh, even a better idea of what this disease is like, I want to share something. John MacArthur shared this from, from a doctor named Dr. Huzenga. He said, The disease which we call leprosy today generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses original color, gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swelling so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble the face of a lion. Fingers drop off and are absorbed back into the body. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. And by this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By the touch of the finger, you can feel it. You can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease produces agents that attack the larynx, the leper's voice assumes a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can not only see, feel, and smell the leper, you can even hear the leper. And if you stay with him for some time, you will find a particular taste in your mouth. All the human senses repulse at a leper. You see, the Old Testament had these uh, practices of observing potential lepers, right? And so if they were already so far along in the disease that it was painfully obvious and they would, wouldn't go through this process. But if not, if it was newer, then they had a two-week observation period where they would look for certain things. And it talks about the hair and the skin and all different kinds of things to help them to see, well, is this leprosy or could it just be eczema or psoriasis or some other less serious skin disease? And so, I mean, all of this is to say, I mean, it's a horrible disease. People were horrified by it. Even in 2 Samuel, David pronounced a curse on Joab, and he said, may his family never be without a leper. You know, so that's how Jewish people felt about this disease. And suffering physically was bad enough, but there was also other aspects, the social aspects of this. Because, you see, other people, they would become unclean and People would become unclean for all kinds of different reasons. And then they would just go through their little ceremonies and they would make the sacrifices and then be declared clean. But lepers couldn't do that. They were habitually, ceremonially unclean. 
They could never become clean. And so even when they would go out, if someone was approaching them or if they were approaching someone else, they would have to yell, unclean, unclean, so that people knew to get out of the way. And then we, we, we see a leper approaching Jesus in a crowd. That's not normal. It's not normal for a leper to be in a crowd and then to approach Jesus. And it's like, this guy had had enough. He didn't care anymore. He's like, I don't care what you people think. This guy can heal me. I believe it. And I'm going to him. Everything else goes out the window. And leprosy, in so many ways, is like the physical representation of sin. You know, Michael Green said, never has there been a condition that so illustrated the spiritual condition of humankind. For sin is a terrible disease that separates us from our fellows and from God. It spreads and it's fatal. And in so many ways, we as believers at some point become like the leper and we're like, forget the courtesies. I I understand the disease that I have and I understand that Jesus can heal me from it. So I'm going to go to him. And that's what this man does. And notice his faith. He, he doesn't ask if Jesus could do this. He only asks if Jesus would do this. See, he knew his faith. He knew. It wasn't a question about Jesus' ability, only about his willingness. Which is amazing because leprosy was considered an uncurable disease. Uh, to get an idea of how people viewed this, the king of Israel, let's, let's look at how he felt after the king of Assyria sent a letter to him asking him to heal Naaman of leprosy. In 2 Kings 5, 6, and 7, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. That's how they were like, this is on par with bringing someone back from the dead. And this leper in our story, he's a Jewish man. Maybe he knew this. And he's walking up to Jesus. Is, Is this God that he can cure a man of his leprosy? Well, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Yes, this is God that he can kill and make alive, that he can cure a man of his leprosy. And Jesus touched him. He touched him. You don't touch a leper, guys. That would make you unclean. But instead of Jesus becoming unclean, this man became clean which is such a foreshadowing of exactly what Jesus came to do, to take our infirmities. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why touch this guy? We're going to see in a moment in the next healing, Jesus didn't need to do that. He's God. He didn't need, he could have said a word. He could have been at a distance. It didn't matter. He didn't need to touch him, but it showed his love. It showed his compassion and it showed him that I can take your uncleanness and make it clean. And that's what he does for us with our sins. But I want us to see with this leper that Jesus includes ceremonial outcasts. 
I know there's a couple of things there in your notes that I put out of order. Um, that was on purpose. He includes ceremonial outclasts. He touched him. He healed him. He included him in his ministry. He was willing, willing to love this man, willing to show him that lepro- he was bigger than leprosy. Right? And leprosy wasn't going to keep him out of the kingdom. It might keep him out of the temple. It was keeping him out of people's homes. It was keeping him out of the marketplace, but it wasn't going to keep him out of heaven. And, and it, it says he was healed immediately. I don't know what an immediate healing of leprosy would look like to the observers. I don't know if they saw you know, his skin just change, if they saw hair grow back and eyebrows, and if they saw pieces of his body reappear or grow back if his voice instantly changed. I don't, we don't get the details of exactly what it was like, but I'll tell you one thing. It was amazing. It was instantaneous. It was immediate and it was amazing. It was miraculous. It was definitely not like the charlatans of today, right? They're always going around saying that they're healing people, but it's always of these weird things that nobody can verify and nobody can see. Or the things that appear to be seen, they're paying actors. So many of those paid actors have been found out. There's this one woman that pretended to have polio, and she went to Benny Hinn. And, and she, so she was pretending to have polio, that she couldn't walk. And then she you know, goes along with his little thing and, and, and is walking around, and everyone's going crazy. And later on, Benny Hinn was in an, an interview with these journalists, and they were asking him about the woman with polio who could now walk. And he's talking about it. And then they look at him, and they say, she works for us. Yeah, he wasn't expecting that. There's another guy, a postman. This is decades ago. He was caught having been healed by 11 different faith healers of nine different diseases in seven different cities as two different genders. Yeah, that's right. He dressed up as a woman and was healed of ovarian cancer twice. And then you've got Todd White going around claiming that he's making people's leg grow longer by pulling on their shoes because apparently he has the gift of healing, but he's most concerned about people who have one leg slightly longer than the other. Or we've got Benny Hinn, or no, Kenneth Copeland getting thousands of people to put their hands on their head and say, bald spots, I call you gone. Hair grow. And you got all these people in his audience putting their hands on their head and doing this, and then they take their hands off, and nobody's hair is longer. You know, you watch the videos, there's bald guys, they're taking their hand off their head. They're bald still. Jesus wasn't a charlatan, he was the real deal. This man was cleansed, he was healed immediately. We see that over and over and over again in the New Testament, that the healings of Jesus and of the apostles, they were immediate, they were verifiable, and they were miraculous. The Bible describes what the apostles were doing as great deeds and wonders. They weren't going around like pushing people in the forehead and watching them fall over and flail around. They weren't like acting like they were Jedi and pushing crowds of people onto their backs. They weren't throwing their coats around screaming, fire! They were doing great deeds and wonders. Those aren't great deeds and wonders. So when someone says that they have the same power and ability and calling 
to do the same things that Jesus did, then you just ask yourself, is what they're doing, does it look like what Jesus is doing? And I think you'll usually find the answer to be no. This man was healed by someone with true power. And he was excited about it, as he should be. And he wanted to go tell everyone, as he should have wanted. But Jesus tells him in verse 4, See that you don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Why would he tell them not to tell anybody? Like, well, it could have been that Jesus didn't want to be known at that point. He didn't want to be known as just a wonder worker. He had a bigger mission. Like the healings that he was doing, they were just verifying who he was. His mission was to heal us of our sins. But... You know, we know that Jesus had a, a particular focus on when and how he wanted to be revealed. Um, there also could have been the aspect that so he's telling this guy to go to the priests and go through the process to be declared clean. And he might have been like, hey, I want you to focus on that right now, not get distracted and go off and run and, and forget what I'm telling you to do. But I, I also think in Mark's account of this story, that we get a glimpse into why Jesus didn't want him to speak up. And we also see that the man didn't even listen anyway. He disobeyed Jesus' command. In Mark 1.45, it says, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around. This is the leper. To such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So he didn't listen, and that made Jesus' ministry more difficult. At the time. And I think that's why he told them not to go do this. But who is the testimony for? He said, go to the priests, present yourself to them, go through the process as a testimony to them. Well, who are them? Is it the priests? It very well could be. Uh, and, but what is the testimony? Is it like, well, they probably don't get a lot of lepers coming in saying, I'm clean. So that's a testimony of Jesus' power. But it also could have been a testimony that he wasn't this anti-Mosaic law renegade that, every, that some people were making him out to be. But whatever the testimony was and whoever it was for, we know that he did tell the man, don't run around and just tell everybody right now, but it was still meant to be used as a testimony, which is the case for all of us with everything that Jesus does for us. But I just wanted to cover those questions because so that we understand this well. Uh, let's move to the next healing in verses five and six. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. Well, what's the setting here? This was a centurion, a Gentile, not Jewish. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was a Roman. And so, you know, there's people in our day that want to make everything about oppressor and oppression. And the Romans were the oppressors at the time. And so not, it's not bad enough that he's Jewish and that he's Roman, but he's in the Roman military. So it's like the worst of the worst of the worst there in terms of the tension, the cultural tension. You see, I don't know what it would be like, maybe like a member of the Israeli Defense Force coming up to a Palestinian right now. You know, you can imagine the tension between the cultures. But interestingly, this centurion is coming for his servant, which, you know, if this is a slave, then that's weird for him to care to do this. 
to spend the time and effort. You see, slaves then were treated as tools. And so if a tool breaks, you don't spend a bunch of time and money trying to fix it. You just toss it and you get another one. But he's coming. And well, at least he sent people. So in Luke's account of this story, the centurion isn't actually there in person. It says he sent Jewish elders to plead with Jesus that he would come. And, and they made the case that you should heal this man's servant because he's a good man and he loves us and he's good to us. And they even said that he built a synagogue for the Jewish people. And so there kind of we start getting a glimpse into this man's character and his relationship with the Jewish people. But was he really there or not? I, I don't think he was. I think Matthew was writing the story kind of like he was there, but it's like his will was being represented there, right? There were representatives that represented him. And, and so he was there in, you know, in essence, but not physically there. But we get a glimpse into his character. Verses seven through nine, he said to him, am I, Jesus said, am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. In verse 13, then Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. And we get a glimpse into this man's humility and his faith. He was humble because he realized how undeserving he was of Christ. Luke's account in Luke 7, 7 says, For that reason, this is him speaking to Jesus, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant shall be healed. So that's why where Luke is saying, this is why he sent people on ahead to speak. He's, I don't even, Jesus, I don't deserve to be in your presence, much less to have you in my house. And he has great faith. He says, you, you just say the word, Jesus. And that's amazing because we have no record up to this point of Jesus having done any kind of miracle at a distance. But he's like, you, you can, I know you can. He recognized you have the power of God. God doesn't need to come to the house. You just speak the word. Now, Jesus was willing to go to his house, which is a big deal because we have no examples that I'm aware of of Jesus going into a Gentile's home. That is not something that Jewish people did, but we know for sure he was willing. And so this whole encounter shows us that Jesus includes the racial outcasts. And in the context of scripture, we're talking about Gentiles, right? Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, even though that's what they had thought. This, it took a long time for the apostles and to get this message. Like they didn't get it here yet. Like it would be much later in the book of Acts that they would finally get it after God kept like punching it into their brains. Like, oh, here, Peter, here's your vision. And oh, oh, the Gentiles have the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? You know, but eventually they got the message. Jesus was opening up the kingdom to those who were ceremonially unacceptable, those who were racially unacceptable. But in this passage, there's another group that he lifts up. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. And he is a woman. Now, women at the time were certainly... Jewish women would have been above 
lepers and Gentiles, but they were still second-class citizens. But Jesus includes the social outcasts. Especially with women, you know, we, we, we see in his ministry that uh, he treated them much differently than they were used to be treat, being treated. The women were following him all along the time of his ministry. He, you know, went and talked to the woman at the well, famous story. Women were the first ones to discover his resurrection. Now, of course, none of that negates the fact that there was still a design that Christ had in his church, in the home, where men and women are equal but have different roles. That doesn't negate the fact, but he was loving them. He was lifting them up above where they were. He included them. He defended them. He taught them. And, and the whole series of healings in this passage is amazing because we're looking at a leper, a Gentile's slave, and a woman. And that was not status quo for Jewish ministry. In fact, Douglas O'Donnell said along the same lines, one of the 18 benedictions prayed each day by any devout Jewish man was, Lord, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. But then here comes Jesus, healing and including those that were cast out by the people that were supposed to be most excited and expecting and ready for him to come. He ended up being the most inclusive, exclusive teacher that they had ever known, that they could ever imagine. O'Donnell also said the temple in Jerusalem was comprised of the Holy of Holies, for the high priest, and then the holy place for the priests, then the court of men for Jewish men, the court of women for Jewish women, then the court of the Gentiles for Gentile converts to Judaism, and then the outer wall of the temple complex. With these three miracles, the walls to the court of the women are broken down, then beyond that, the walls of the court of the Gentiles, and then beyond that, the walls of the temple itself are leveled so that even the lepers of this world can wander in. Behold, with Jesus, the gates to the kingdom of heaven are open to all who believe, to all who will call him Lord and get up and serve him. And that's right. And Jesus wouldn't settle just hoping that his followers would get the point at somewhere along the way. He wanted to make this abundantly clear which again, we're kind of going out of order, but we back up to verses 10 through 12, where this is after the healing of the centurion's servant. Hearing this issue, Jesus was amazed and said to those, hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom there, he's, he's saying Gentiles are going to be at the messianic banquet and Jews are going to be cast out. And he's not being absolute like all the Jews and all the Gentiles, no. But they are having to learn that heaven is an inclusive city. But with that truth, that also means that hell is inclusive as well. And this would have been excruciating to hear for a prideful Jewish person. 
but they had to learn it. And Jesus expands on this, or Paul expands on this in Romans. Oh, I forgot that part. Michael Green said the Jews looked forward to the Messianic banquet as their private preserve, yet here is Jesus saying that the banquet would see many Jews excluded and many of the despised pagans welcomed. And Paul teaches in Romans 11.25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then he says in Romans 11.30 and 31, a few verses later, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, the Gentiles, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, the Jews, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. We're not going to plumb the depths of this passage this morning, but what this is teaching us is that God had a plan and it included everybody from the beginning. And, it, and it, it was never about, oh, all the Jews are going to be in heaven and the Gentiles don't get heaven. And it was never about any of that. But God's plan from the beginning included everyone. The Jewish people aren't the only people who need to learn this either. You see, if Jesus was going to come and if he made it a point to reach out and to include those who were, were cast out, cast out by their families, by their their friends by their societies, then we should have the same mentality. There's no kind of person out there in this world that is not created in the image of God and is not in need of healing. And we might not be able to go out and wield God's power for physical healing anytime we want, but we can absolutely wield the gospel on demand. And so often the seeds of the gospel find their best soil among the outcasts. They tend to be more humble, more desperate, more appreciative of being acknowledged. It's the love of Christ that leads us to those who were despised and rejected in this world. And Christ connects so well with them because he was himself despised and rejected in this world. And so we get to take this wonderful gospel out to a world and we get to say, guess what, guys? Here it is. You can know God. You can be redeemed. You can be healed. And it doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what job you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you smell like. It doesn't matter even what you've done because heaven is open to all. Yes, the gate is narrow, but it is open. Praise God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel, it's exclusive and it's inclusive. And we, we get this picture of heaven that one day in Revelation, we read this beautiful passage out of seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. 
from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is our picture of heaven. And so we preach an exclusive and an inclusive gospel because heaven and hell are both exclusive and inclusive cities. Amen?